Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora. My name's William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. And I'm on the street of Wellington today asking people how they would murder someone. Definitely like a gun. Just bam, <laughs> just, it's done. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I just think it would be like just the best way because you'd feel powerful like holding it and it would be just quite instant. Not No hard work on my part. So how would you do Basically, it? if you see somebody and you really want to kill them, get out your knife and stab them in the head. Poison, maybe? Why poison? Well, it'd be non-violent, and maybe you could mask the drugs. If you asked me that question, I think I'm with that last woman. Poisoning just feels like it would be less traumatic. A few drops in someone's glass of water, and it's done. You don't even have to be there to see it happen. But the poisoning we're going to talk about today was not like the kind of genteel killing you'd expect in Agatha Christie or something like that. He married this woman with a view to murdering her. You know, he was putting poison into her for nearly two months, watching her suffer the most dreadful suffering. And that's why I think the judge was right, who said that most murderers are kind compared to you. That's Peter Graham. He's a retired lawyer turned historian and author. His book is the basis for today's episode, Vile Crimes, the Timaru Poisonings. And the setting of these crimes in Timaru is important. So we should start by talking about the history of that South Canterbury town. Timaru was not really a town at all until 1857. There was a wool boom between 1858 and 1878, so let's say 20 years, absolute boom years. For a while it was driven by a huge spike in wool prices caused by the American Civil War. There were a lot of people who'd made a lot of money and they built huge houses and they had wonderful estates and gardens and horses and carriages and indoor servants and outdoor servants. Among that group of ultra-rich Timaruvians was Tom Hall, part of a very wealthy and influential family. The most famous member of that family was Tom's uncle, John Hall, a politician who rose to become the Premier of New Zealand in 1879. John Hall was actually the guy who oversaw the Parihaka raid and was rubbing shoulders with the likes of Julius Vogel and George Grey. Tom's father, T.W. Hall, was a rich landowner who owned sheep runs in the Mackenzie country. While he was still in his mid-teens, Tom was pulled out of school to join the family business. But it seems he quickly decided the life of a high country farmer wasn't for him. His diary entries from that time might reveal why. July 20. Stayed a night with Parkinson on the way up. Lots of snow and severe frost. My horse had icicles three inches long on his nostrils. Instead, Tom became a businessman. He was briefly a bank manager, but then went into partnership with a man called Edward Tate. They were 
I don't know, wheeler dealers, really. They were land brokers, commission agents. They uh, invested money for people, arranged insurance, and uh, they arranged mortgages and, and so on. Tom and Edward's partnership lasted up until 1882 when Edward suddenly died from a stroke and Tom set up a second business. People thought he was good at what he did and uh, no-one had any reason to suspect there was anything wrong um, with this company. But later it turned out that that company was in uh, very, very serious trouble and Tom Hall had been stealing clients' money and he had been forging various instruments that enabled him to raise money from the bank and he was shuffling money around left, right and centre trying to stay off uh, the day when, when, he was, um, when he was going to be exposed. So Tom Hall, it turns out, was a fraud. He was running a kind of Ponzi scheme, using new investors' money to pay off the old investors. He desperately needed more investors to keep coming in all the time to prevent this scheme from falling down around his ears. And that was a big problem because right at this moment, in the 1880s, there was a worldwide credit crisis. The reaction the people of Timaru had to these hard times was a bit strange. Instead of cutting costs, they spent more. Here's how one woman who lived through those times described it. There were in Timaru a large class of people who deliberately and consistently overspent. Social climbing was a game played feverishly in deadly earnest. If I had not lived in Timaru at that time, I could never have understood how much social position could count or to what lengths otherwise sensible people would go to obtain it. Even when times were hard in the 1880s, men in society found it impossible to give up the club, subscribe to the hunt, the smart carriages and well-bred horseflesh. It was strange, but kind of understandable. In just 20 years, Timaru had gone from being just a few shacks on a beach to one of the wealthiest places in the country. Men who spent their youth driving sheep across the deadly Rakaia River over hundreds of kilometres of snow-covered hill country were now the cream of society, living it up on big estates with servants and fancy carriages it was hard to face the reality that the bubble had burst. And of course, for Tom Hall, keeping up an appearance of financial stability in the face of the economic downturn was absolutely essential. Otherwise, how would he keep attracting clients to invest in his rapidly unravelling Ponzi scheme? His way out of this was to marry a wife with money. And he picked upon... Kitty Kane, she was always called. She was one of two stepdaughters of Captain Kane. Captain Kane, along with George Rhodes of the Levels, was really the founding father of Timaru. Uh, he was an old sea captain who um, parked himself in Timaru and set up a, a tent on the beach selling supplies for um, the new settlers who were taking up land in that, in that district. Captain Kane, who was a bit of a rough diamond, but much liked by, by everyone, made a lot of money. Tom and Kitty were married, and despite some disputes over the management of Kitty's family trust, 
Tom and Captain Kane seemed to become good friends. But Captain Kane was not a well man. There were all sorts of things wrong with him. Uh, dropsy and kidney trouble and heart circulation trouble, which resulted in gangrene. Dr McIntyre prescribed champagne for Captain Kane. And Who was a very heavy drinker, we should point very out. Very heavy drinker. He, 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 ha- he had um, two quart bottles of champagne at least a day and sometimes another two quarts were drunk at night. After Tom and Kitty's marriage in May 1885, Captain Kane took a turn for the worse. He suffered vomiting attacks, often immediately after drinking. He died in late January in 1886. By this time, Kitty's pregnant. She and Tom moved into Captain Kane's old house, called Woodlands, and she gave birth in June to a boy called Nigel. But then, Kitty falls sick as well. She had vomiting attacks. She was violently ill day and night, and as the weeks went on, she got worse and worse. She was wasting away. She became thin as a rake. Her complexion was a dull, jaundiced colour. And as well as vomiting and retching, she itched all over. One of the worst symptoms was just a constant itching. She itched all over her shoulders. Her calves twitched uncontrollably. Her lips and nostrils were constantly sore. Her tongue was furry and covered in red spots. Blue lines appeared round her gums and blue rings under her eyes. She was tormented night and day by unquenchable thirst. I could draw this out by going through the details of how the doctors were baffled, how Tom stayed vigil at her bedside, how the people of Timaru gossiped over the mystery of Kitty's illness. But I think it's best to just cut to the chase. Kitty Hall was being poisoned. Her husband, Tom Hall, was the poisoner, and he'd planned all along to kill her in order to get his hands on the wealth she held as part of that family trust. Tom Hall travelled to Christchurch to get legal advice before he married Kitty, asking about these trusts, raising the question of what, if any, benefit might occur to him as the husband if the wife should die. And he was advised that um, if his wife died without having children, then her share of the, of the trusts, the trust property and the trust income, would go to the surviving sister. But if there was a child, the child would um, be the beneficiary of the trust, and he, as the child's father and guardian, would effectively have the use of that trust money for 21 years until the, in, in, until the child became of age. So that told him what the optimum uh, solution was, that, that, that Kitty should produce a child and then he would kill her. Three weeks before his wedding, Tom bought 120 grains of tartar emetic from a chemist. The day after Kitty gave birth to his son, he bought another 120. All up, that was enough poison to kill about 80 people. 
Tom claimed he wanted this chemical to make medicinal cigarettes to treat his asthma. And if the idea of medicinal cigarettes has you confused, let me point out that this is the 1880s and doctors gave patients all sorts of weird things. Tom was also taking heavy doses of morphine. In any case, tartar emetic is made using a metal called antimony. Antimony is like, it's a bit like arsenic. It's a meta- so it's a metallic poison that accumulates in the system and only two or three grains would be, um, would be enough to kill someone. But it was quite a, it's quite a hard poison to administer because you'd have to get the mix exactly right. If you give too much, it'll just be vomited up. So it, you, what, what he would have hoped was to put it in uh, Kitty's water supply and she would drink it without knowing that um, that's, what, that's what she was getting. So he bought his poison just before he was married. He also bought um, a copy of a book, Taylor on Poisons. There's a, there's a story that Kitty was talking to one of her friends and she would sort of say in a joking way, Tom's always reading this book on poisons and I, I don't particularly like it and ha 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 isn't that funny um, but there he was he married her in order to kill her Tom probably hoped that by poisoning Kitty with antimony her death would be less suspicious instead of her suddenly dropping dead foaming at the mouth she would seem to suffer a long lingering ultimately fatal illness Tom isn't exactly a master criminal. I mean, we just talked about how he was constantly reading a book on poison in front of witnesses. And on top of that, the symptoms of antimony poisoning were well known by doctors. Peter Graham says it's frankly astonishing that Kitty's doctors didn't realise the cause of her illness much earlier. It probably didn't help that Tom was very good friends with Kitty's first doctor, a man called Patrick McIntyre. Dr McIntyre might not have raised the alarm at all if it hadn't been for one of Kitty's nurses. Nurse Ellison saw Tom give Kitty um, a sip of water um, that she complained tasted a bit sort of brackish and then was immediately sort of vomited. And Nurse Ellison kept some of that water and uh, took it to... Um, Dr. McIntyre, and Dr. McIntyre and one of the other doctors went down to the local chemist shop and they analysed the water and they found uh, antimony in that water. It was then, only then, that McIntyre went to the police. Dr. McIntyre swore evidence against Tom Hall and also against one of Kitty's nurses, a woman called Margaret Houston. She was working as a as a nurse at the Timaru Hospital. She was a Scottish young woman, very good looking, very smart, always fashionably dressed and and so on. She was recruited to act as a nurse for Kitty's stepfather, Captain Kane. After Captain Kane's death, Margaret Houston came to work for Kitty and Tom. She and Tom became very close suspiciously close in a lot of people's minds. Servants talked about the pair of them spending a lot of time in each other's rooms. One time, Tom even helped her get dressed. When dressing to go to the ball, Miss Houston allegedly came into the dining room and asked Tom Hall to tighten her stays, which he did. And as I have said, although well covered by undergarments, she was not wearing her dress. So this was considered a sort of a shocking 
Um, <laughs> It'd be a bit like uh, someone coming, you know, coming out in their underwear and asking someone to sort of do up their bra or something for yeah, the, that for the sort social of norms That's, of the time. That 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 sort of thing, absolutely, absolutely. So, but that was considered, um, you know, a significant bit of evidence. And I suppose I think I think you'd have to say probably it was. And Margaret Houston's reaction when the police came to arrest her and Tom didn't help her case. This arrest, by the way, is insanely dramatic. Two police arrive at the house. They walked in the door and told Tom and Margaret they were under arrest for the attempted murder of Kitty Hall with antimony. Here's how the police recorded the conversation they had with Tom and Margaret. Antimony? Isn't that what you use in your photography, Tom? Keep quiet, will you? You have nothing to do with this. What shall I say? I suppose a man ought to be very careful what he says when a charge like this is made against him. Well, you can say anything you like, or nothing at all, if you think fit. I have used antimony for a long time. I've bought tartar emetic at Gun and Eichbaum's to use with some other things to make into cigarettes for my asthma. Whatever I did in this matter, I did alone. There was no second person involved in it. Miss Houston has nothing whatever to do with this. But while he's saying this, Tom's mind is racing because right at that moment, he realises there's a bottle of poison in his pocket. He had to get rid of it. And he was trying to uh, edge his way towards the fire and, and throw what he had in his pocket into the fireplace. And this turned into a wrestling match. And Margaret sort of got involved in the brawl. She was coming to the rescue of Tom Hall. And that wasn't the end of the drama. Just before the scuffle happened, Tom had asked for a glass of whiskey to settle his nerves. The servants couldn't find any whisky, so instead they gave him a bottle of brandy which had been sitting on Kitty's bedside. The inspector noticed the brandy looked strangely cloudy. There's something wrong with this brandy. No, it's all right. Of course there's something the matter with it. No, there's not. The bottle was later found to be laced with a poison called colchicine. Tom had told Nurse Allison to give the bottle to Kitty that night. If that had happened, Kitty certainly would have been killed. The police arrived just in time. They searched Tom's room and found another poison, a trophia, in a bottle labelled Eye Drops, along with a copy of Taylor on Poisons sitting on his bedside. Margaret and Tom were taken to the police station where Tom said to her, You're quite safe and will be able to get clear of it. It is I that am in for it. He didn't realise that a police officer was sitting right behind him and wrote down every word he said. Again, not exactly a master criminal. The arrest of Tom Hall and Margaret Houston was enormous news. It was such a big story that it drove the other headlines off the front page, including the eruption of Mount Tarawera and the destruction of the pink and white terraces. And they just couldn't believe it. People couldn't believe it. But, of course, it was tremendously exciting you know, a lot of the, the young women around Timaru were saying, oh, well, you know, I went out with Tom Hall and, you know, gosh, just as well I didn't marry him. This could have happened to me. And they all thought it was a bit of a joke. But once the more of the story seeped out and people knew just how shocking the whole thing had been, the mood changed 
very dramatically. Everyone was uh, absolutely horrified by what had happened, and you know, if they'd had half a chance, they would have lynched him. I'm sure. Virtually everyone in New Zealand heard about the Timaru poisoning case, and there was a lot of concern that Tom's family connections would mean that he'd never be prosecuted. When it was finally announced that the pair had been committed for trial, a local poet wrote this. The magistrate sits on his bench. That chief from duty does not flinch. Who or whom to hymns or one? Justice impartial marks that man. One in ten thousand sits he there. The right with justice balance fair. Just as a quick aside, the lawyer for the prosecution in Tom Hall's trial was Robert Stout, who at the time was both the Premier of New Zealand and the Attorney General. Can you imagine this happening today? The Prime Minister personally prosecuting the most high-profile crime in the country and the accused criminal was related to the former Prime Minister. It'd be like John Key prosecuting David Bain, but David Bain was Helen Clark's nephew. It's just completely mental. But in those days, a lack of lawyers meant needs must, I guess. By the way, if Robert Stout's name is pricking your memory, that's because he also went on to be Chief Justice and was the judge in the trial of Alice Parkinson, the woman we based the very first episode of Black Sheep on. Anyway, back to Tom Hall's trial. One witness said the attic had been stuffed with old rags and straw and soaked with kerosene. Tom's plan, it seems, was to poison Kitty and then burn the house down. Tom would rescue his son Nigel and become the hero of the day while Kitty's body was burned, eliminating the risk of an autopsy uncovering traces of poison in her system. By the way, Tom had recently taken out fire insurance. It took the jury just eight minutes to find him guilty of attempted murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. And the judge said, I'll just quote some of it, the crime of which you have been convicted is one of the most inhuman and detestable crimes one has ever read or heard of. Uh, no language I can use will sufficiently describe the detestable character of the crime of which you have been found guilty. Most murderers are kind when compared to you, for you have murdered from hour to hour, from day to day, from week to week. You have achieved in the annals of crime the position of being the vilest criminal ever tried in New Zealand. And uh, it's pretty hard to argue that, and I'm not sure that anyone has um, pushed him out of that position um, subsequently. Margaret Houston, however, was exonerated. We should stress there was no evidence that Tom and Margaret actually had a sexual relationship. In fact, a doctor examined her and found, quote, all the evidences of virginity present. But Peter Graham finds it hard to believe she played no part in the poison plot. In my view, there were very considerable grounds for suspecting that she was um, complicit in the, in the poisoning of Kitty. She knew, certainly, what Tom was doing because she used to go into his room every day to make his bed and he had um, supplies of uh, tartar emetic uh, and another poison called colchicine um, sitting on his dressing table with a copy of Taylor on Poisons. And don't forget, she was a nurse, so she must have known what those things were. The judge gave a very, uh, almost a eulogy for her. He was seemed to be quite taken with her. 
and uh, thought there was no evidence whatsoever against her. And uh, anyway, she, so she was acquitted. That's not the end of the story, though, because while the preparations for the trial were underway, Dr Patrick McIntyre had a sudden realisation. Towards the end of his life, Captain Kane had suffered very similar symptoms to Kitty. What if Tom poisoned him too? There was only one way to find out. The police dug up Captain Kane's body. The Timaru Herald described the scene with a sort of morbid glee. The saga of the Timaru poisonings must have been really good for selling newspapers. The scene was a ghostly and horrible one. The sky was enveloped in heavy, threatening-looking black clouds. The scene laid as it was in the cemetery was enough to fill the spectators with horror, which was heightened by the lanterns, now and then flashing their rays on tombstones and graves. And the sight of the ghostly coffin, covered in mud and dripping with water, caused an involuntary shudder to pass through the assembled crowd. The coffin's lid was accidentally smashed in the process, so the spectators could see Captain Kane's rotting corpse inside throughout this whole thing. Honestly, it's like a scene out of a Stephen King novel. Anyway, the corpse is tested, and antimony is found in large quantities. Tom Hall is now facing another trial, this time for murder, and this time the sentence could be death. It was a difficult case to bring home because Captain Kane was dying of so many different things um, that the prosecution's case was, well, whatever was the actual effective cause of death, the effect of the antimony in his system must have been to accelerate that death. And the prosecution, I think feeling it was on shaky ground, admitted evidence of the poisoning of Kitty as part of the case against him for the murder of his father-in-law on the basis that it was um, the crimes were so similar that um, they were, as a matter of law, admissible. Tom Hall was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. But in a very unusual move for the time, his case was appealed. There was no actual right to an appeal at this time in history. The only way it could happen was for the judge to put out their hand and say, uh, there was a tricky point of law I had to rule on in this case. I might have gotten it wrong, so let's bring in a panel of judges for a second opinion. The tricky point of law in this case was using Tom's attempted poisoning of Kitty as evidence that he also poisoned Captain Kane. It was ruled that the evidence was not properly admissible. Um, this is a very complicated area of law, but I argue that the evidence was correctly admitted and should have stood. Anyway, the net result was that Tom Hall was acquitted of murder. As you might imagine, the fact that such a high-profile criminal as Tom Hall managed to dodge a death sentence due to a legal technicality caused a lot of anger among the general public. The Timaru Herald put it like this. A feeling of soreness and dissatisfaction has arisen. The mildest of the adverse comments was that the trial was a farce, that the Crown lawyers bungled the prosecution and that a murderer of the very vilest stamp has escaped punishment through a technicality. The newspapers were very vocal and very adamant that 
um, you know, he'd been rescued from the gallows because of um, his family connections and social position and so on and so forth. I'm not at all convinced that that's right, but that's what people were saying. I mean, you think that the that the judges and actually his, you know, well-connected relatives in this case acted incredibly carefully. Tom kept saying to his, you know, to his uncle, John Hall, you know, can you put in a word for me? Why, why am I still in prison? And John Hall wrote saying anything, any attempt to, uh, on my part to intervene would not be helpful to you. And the authorities would be most careful to be seen not to be giving you any special favours because you're my nephew. And I'm sure that was right. The fact that he did stay in prison for 21 years, that being more than the, the, than the usual tariff for attempted murder, to make the point that as a, as a, his murder, as a, as a murderer, he was the worst of the worst, and he was not getting any special favours because, um, because of who he was. Tom never really showed any regret for his crimes. The closest he came was to blame his attempt at killing Kitty on his use of morphine. As we said earlier, he took it for his asthma and was probably addicted. I see him as a psychopath type. Um, that cold calculation, the charm, the way he could sit there with his wife, you know, hour after hour, day after day, the feeling of self-justification, the feeling that he was so hard done by that he had to stay in prison for 21 years instead of 20. He didn't ever really seem to show any proper remorse. He just said, oh, well, you know, it was all the fault I was, had morphine, so that was what it was, and now I can never, I'm never likely to offend because I don't take morphine anymore. It wasn't really a proper response to what he'd done. That's how, that's how, that's how I see him. As for Kitty, she recovered from the poison but never came to terms with the idea that Tom tried to kill her. She simply refused to believe it. She helped Tom mount his defence for the murder of Captain Kane, her stepfather, and campaigned for his early release from prison. Maybe it was easier that way, better to live in denial than to deal with the fact that someone you loved could do something so horrific. You could even see it as a courageous act of forgiveness, but... It seems horrible to say this, given all she went through. It could also have been that Kitty wasn't very bright. I think she was pretty pretty dim, really. A very nice person. But there's a comment in a letter from Sir John Hall talking about the son, Nigel. He's, a, you know, what a nice young man he was growing up to be. And, um, and he was very good with his uh, none-too-wise mother. <laughs> and I think that probably... Um, that probably says it. After he was released from prison in 1907, Tom Hall went to Australia. He was paid an allowance by his rich and influential uncle on condition that he never returned to New Zealand. Kitty set aside money for Tom and her will. Right up to her death, she refused to believe the worst of him. Tom changed his name and lived out the rest of his life as a photographer. His grave is in the seaside town of Yapoon, about halfway between Cairns and Brisbane. The gravestone reads, Paul Newstead died 10th August 1929, aged 81 years, at rest. It's a very unremarkable grave for a man once labelled the vilest criminal ever tried in New Zealand. Oh, oh, let's make it feel the case in the sky. 
Special thanks to Peter Graham. His book again is Vile Crimes, The Timaru Poisonings. If you like the show, go ahead and subscribe via RNZ's new app and tell a friend about Black Sheep. If you have a moment, give us a rating on iTunes too. That really helps new people find the show. RNZ has loads of other awesome podcasts, by the way. If you have an eye for fashion, why not try out My Heels Are Killing Me by Sonia Sly. The latest episode takes a deep dive into the world of men's fashion. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. This episode was engineered by Dan Beban. We had voice acting help this week from Susie Ferguson, Megan Whelan, Duncan Smith, Adam McCauley and Simon Dickinson. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.